Um, I'm just going to reiterate what Marcus said and welcome you all again here to Cornerstone this morning. Yes, it's drizzly, it's murky outside, but praise God we're here this morning and as we heard there this morning, uh, lovely fullness and joy um, and we just we're so thankful that we're here meeting together. Reading this morning uh, from Matthew 5, continuing on uh, on the Sermon of the Mount. Which is a very short passage to read this morning, but a very difficult one. Verses 31 and 32 of Matthew chapter 5. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. Lord, it is good to meet in your house this morning. And we are so thankful to do so. We're so thankful, Lord, to have our family here. We pray, Lord, for those in Morocco and those in Libya who do not have their families or do not know where their families are. Hard times, very hard times. Be with them, Lord. Be with the governments of those countries. Be with the leaders, the rescue workers, and those that are coming to assist Lord, we cannot imagine such things, and we pray, Lord, for your peace, your love to be upon them and surround them. Lord, we're thankful this morning for the young ones who are here. and pray, Lord, that you would guide the leaders as they speak to the children this morning, that they would grow in wisdom, that they would come to know you as their Lord, their mighty Savior, their rock, the one that they can depend on. Thank you, Lord, this morning as John comes to speak, Lord, and thank you, Lord, for him and for the wisdom that you've given him to speak words that can be hard but true. And we thank you, Lord, for your love that surrounds us, and we thank you, Lord, for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Carolyn. Uh, today we are continuing our series in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and we come to what is uh, another difficult passage for us and, and difficult words that Jesus says around the issue of divorce. And what we need to do before we actually get into the issue of divorce this morning is actually start where God starts, and that is around marriage. What is marriage? Uh, because we can't really look at divorce if we don't know what marriage is, and so that's where we're going to start briefly. What is God's plan for marriage? Well, God, the first thing to say about God's plan for marriage is, is that very thing, that, that marriage is God's plan. 
marriage has been God's plan from day one, where Adam was alone. And in Genesis 2, we see that, that God sees that Adam is alone, and he declares that it is not good that man should be alone. And so he creates Eve to be his, as it says in the Hebrew, helper. She is his helper. And so the two become one, and that is the first marriage. And so God, marriage is God's plan, and he had a plan for that, and it is outlined in five ways particularly. Five ways that God's plan for marriage is outlined. Let me give you to them, or let me give them to you actually. Uh, One is heterosexual. God's plan for marriage is heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman. That's the way it has always been. Number two, it is monogamous. It is between one man and one woman, no one else. It is permanent, not to be entered into lightly or flippantly. Uh, That's why at the beginning of any marriage ceremony, Uh, You will hear, if you go to a wedding, you will hear probably most likely, I hope that you hear, uh, that whoever is officiating say that. Say that, that this is not to be entered into lightly or flippantly. It is supposed to be a permanent arrangement. Fourthly, it is covenantal in nature. Marriage is covenantal in nature. What does that mean? Well, it means that when two people become one flesh, or when they get married, they are making a covenant with one another and before God. That's what covenant means. You're making promises to one another uh, and, and doing that before God. So what that means is this. And I want to stress this. It doesn't matter how you feel. The promises that we make in marriage do not depend on our feelings. There will be many times, no doubt, if you're married in here and you know this, there will be many times you don't feel like being married, you don't feel like you love the other person, you don't feel like blah, 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 you don't feel, that doesn't matter. You have made promises before God to do what you've said you're going to do. That's the only thing that matters. Far too much of our society, far too much of our culture is based on how we feel. And the reality is, feelings have very little to do with it. Covenant has everything to do with it. So it is covenantal in nature. Fifthly and finally, it's unifying. The two shall become one flesh. And here's the reality. God created marriage. It is His plan, and it is His plan for human flourishing. And that's why theologians call it a a creation ordinance. Marriage is a creation ordinance, meaning that it is for everyone, not just for believers, for believers, for non-believers. It is for the flourishing of humanity. That's why we call it a creation ordinance. So, What we see here today in Matthew 5, what we see in Matthew 19, what we see in the the account in in Mark 10, and what we see in the account in Luke, 
is Jesus speaking about marriage. And when Jesus speaks about marriage in these accounts, he is speaking to everyone. He is not simply speaking to believers. Paul in Corinthians will say things specifically to believers about marriage, but in the Gospels, Jesus is speaking to everyone about marriage. And again, can I stress, this is a topic, the topic of divorce, the topic of remarriage, the one that we'll look at today is a hugely sensitive issue, and it needs to be handled with extreme care and grace. But the best way that we can handle it, the only way, in fact, that we can handle it, is stay true to what Jesus has said. Now, that means two things. That means that we don't add to what Jesus has said, nor do we take away from what Jesus has said. And so the best way to handle a difficult topic like this is to actually stay true to what Jesus has said and stay as close to that as we possibly can. And that's what I'm going to attempt to do today. We have seen over the last decade, possibly two decades, an erosion of what marriage is supposed to be. And unfortunately, this erosion has came sometimes in the church in an attempt, and this is all it is, in an attempt to be more culturally acceptable. And the reality is, in those churches where they have belittled what Jesus has said around marriage, the reality is that those churches have actually shrunk, not grown, in an attempt to be more culturally acceptable. That's the reality. In churches that hold fast to what Jesus has said and hold fast to the teachings of, of the Bible, what we'll find is the church grows. And those churches that deem it acceptable to undermine the Scriptures in an attempt, as I say, to be culturally uh, relevant or whatever the motive is, they shrink because they are not real churches. That's what happens. So today we'll be pr predominantly be looking at this passage in, in Matthew 5 here in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. But as I said, there are other passages that, passages that deal with divorce and remarriage. One is, is Mark 10, Matthew 19, uh, those, and, and, and then we'll briefly look at that passage in Corinthians that, that Paul talks to the Corinthian church about uh, marriage and remarriage. The reality is this, divorce is real for many of us. Either we know some, either we've been directly affected by it, or we know someone who has been affected by it, or we know a relative, or we know someone, or we have a friend, or whatever it may be, who, who have been affected by this issue. So it's real. Interestingly, I was doing some research this week, and in 1970, there were 370 divorces in Northern Ireland. Today, the average is around 2,000. 1970, there were around 370. Today, the average is around 2,000. In 2013, there were 8,000 marriages in Northern Ireland, but there were also 2,000 divorces. That trend of around 2,000 has carried on from about that period. 
Now, do the math. If you take that over a span of 10 years, you have 20,000 divorces in Northern Ireland. That means that there are 40,000 individuals affected by those divorces, not counting children, uh, relatives, not counting any of that, 40,000 individuals directly affected by this. Therefore, it's a huge issue for the church and not one that should be shied away from being spoken on. So, what does Jesus say? Jesus says this is the third of the six statements that Jesus makes. You have heard it said. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. If we look at the passage in Mark 10, what we'll see is Jesus speaking about the same issue. Let me, I want to read that, 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 just that, that passage for us. Again, it's an interesting one where the, where the disciples, uh, the Pharisees ask a question, and then later on the disciples want clarification on it. This is what it said. And he left there, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him. And again, as his, was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up to him in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them with a question, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, which is key, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. There's a line again that you'll hear from a marriage ceremony. And in the house, his disciples asked him, because the disciples weren't absolutely clear on what Jesus was saying. Uh, they asked him about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband, she unmarries another, she commits adultery. You see, in that passage, the Pharisees had asked Jesus a question about divorce in the location that they asked him in order to try and trap him. It's the exact same location that they trapped John the Baptist, and he ended up being beheaded for what he said. So they're trying to do the same. But they were also, this is the thing about the Pharisees, when they ask these questions about divorce or when they ask these questions about anything, the key is why they're doing it. And why they're doing it is to what? Justify themselves. That's what we're told. They were seeking to justify their behavior. Because at the time, the Pharisees were handing out divorces like they were confetti. And so what they wanted to do was justify themselves and justify probably a lot of their own behavior. One reason at the time, I'll get into this in a moment, there were three predominant thoughts on divorce, but one, of, one, one reason at the time that the Pharisees permitted a divorce was that if a wife had made a derogatory comment about her mother-in-law, then the husband could divorce her. I think that should still stand. But... Uh, that, that is literally as easy as it was. 
as easy as it was. And so they wanted to justify themselves. And sometimes we're no different. They wanted to justify themselves. We often, as I said last week, even as we looked at what we looked at last week and and the issue of lust, what we often want to do, desire to do, is to look at other people in order to justify ourselves. And so even as we come to an issue like this, like divorce. The temptation for us is to sit here and say, well, this doesn't affect me, but look at them sinners. Why are we doing that? In order to justify ourselves, to make ourselves look better, to make ourselves feel right about ourselves, to do whatever we need to do to make ourselves feel right. That's wrong. It's pharisaical. You don't want to fall into that camp. You don't want to fall into the camp of the Pharisees and seek to justify yourself. That's what they were doing. So let's not look at others. Let's focus on the Word of God and see what Jesus said. Three predominant interpretations of the law at the time. And so as I say from from previous weeks, Jesus has two audiences here on the Sermon on the Mount. He has the Pharisees on the the fringes, and then he has the ordinary everyday people who who are listening to him. And so the ordinary everyday people probably were aware of what the Pharisees interpreted the law as, and so they were giving out divorces left, right, and center. But, but Jesus said, flips that around. But the three, permanent, or three prominent views at the time were held by, by two teachers, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. Uh, Hillel was the, the lax one that divorce was okay for any reason. Shammai was probably a little bit more rigid. And what Jesus says in, in, the, in, the, in the passage in, in Mark is that Moses gave you this. Moses gave you this uh, concession. In, in Deuteronomy 24, you'll find the concession. Go there later and look at what Deuteronomy 24 says about divorce. But Moses gives you this concession in the Old Testament, not because it's God's plan. Not because God wants this. I, elsewhere in the, in the Old Testament, I think it's in Malachi, uh, Jesus says this, I hate divorce. That's what he says. But here what we have in in Deuteronomy 24, God gives this, this permission because of human sinfulness, not because of his plan, but we see here because of your hardness of hearts, you were given this. So it's not this permission. It is a concession. And it was to regulate divorce rather than to provide a way out. Just provide this out. It was to regulate it. To put things in place. Incidentally, something that comes out of the provision in Deuteronomy 24 is that remarriage is presupposed. Go and read read Deuteronomy 24. You'll see there remarriage is presupposed. The only actual command in Deuteronomy 24 is that after the divorce and remarriage, of the rem- when the remarriage doesn't last, then a wife may not go back to her first husband. That's the only thing that is said. Now, why you'd want to do that, I'm not sure, but that's what God put in there. 
So it's extremely important that we see the heart of God in this issue. It is never, ever, ever to give a way out. Ever. But it is to limit the way out. And we'll see that as we move on. As I say, God's heart for marriage is that it is permanent. It was only supposed to be that way. Mark 10. Again, we're flipping between these passages today because some are more helpful than others are just to explain things. Mark 10. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The Mark 10 version seems very, very straightforward, doesn't it? There's no provision made in Mark 10 for anything else. Look, Look at the Mark 10 version, and what you see is very straightforward. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Seems pretty straightforward. But also extremely hard to take. Hard to listen to. Because of our own sensitivities. John Stott said this, These are hard sayings. They expose with candor the logical consequences of sin. If a divorce and remarriage take place, which, here's the, here's the key line in John Stott, this John Stott quote, if a divorce and remarriage take place which have no sanction from God, then any new union which follows is unlawful and is adulterous. It's difficult to hear, but but Stott here raises a question that must be answered. Are there cases that God will allow divorce and remarriage? Are there cases that God will allow divorce and remarriage? That is not seen as sinful. That has His sanction. And when we ask that question, here's the thing, right? And I will just be totally honest with you. Because I love people. And I want what's best for people. And so my temptation when we ask a question like that, is, is there places where God will allow sanction divorce, will sanction remarriage, and it'd be okay? Here's my temptation. I will look for a loophole. Because if we can't find a loophole, then it will be really, really difficult. We don't want loopholes, though. We want to stay faithful to Scripture. And so that's what we're going to try to attempt to do. When we ask that question, we we must be very careful that we're not looking for a loophole. So, what we have introduced here in Matthew, here in Matthew 5, if you, if you see that Mark passage, the Mark passage is very simple. Divorce, remarriage, adultery. Divorce, remarriage, adultery. What we have here in Matthew introduced is what is, caused, what is called the exception clause. The exception clause. And this account in Matthew, and it's the same one as I say, Matthew 19 says the same thing. It's hugely important as we study this topic Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality 
and marries another commits adultery. So in Matthew, what we have here is what looks like an addition to the Mark passage. It's different. Mark does not include this. Luke does not include this. So why do they leave it out? Well, this is the reason. There's a very simple explanation for this, and this is what it is. Matthew, and this is brief sort of theology of the Gospels, the Gospels were written to different audiences with different emphasis. So what you have in Matthew is Matthew is written to a primarily Jewish audience. So Matthew needs to be explicit about this exception clause where, where Mark and Luke are both writing to prominent, predominantly Gentiles, and Gentiles would have included this anyway. Jews would not, and so Matthew needs to be explicit in what he's saying. And so that's why this exception clause is included in Matthew. In the Gentile culture, this would have been a given. So Mark and Luke see no reason to include the exception, but Matthew does. And here in Matthew 5, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Now, question, how can you make her commit adultery if remarriage is not assumed by Jesus? So in the case of Matthew 5, Jesus presupposes, again, remarriage, and that's significant. There is one significant word, though, that we need to look at in both cases in Matthew 5 and Matthew, uh, Matthew 19, and that is the word sexual immorality. What does that mean? Because that's critical. If Jesus says this, these are the only grounds on which someone can get a divorce which I sanction, and someone can remarry that I sanction, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you, there were three, three interpretations back in the day, and then I'll tell you what, where, where, I, where I land. The Greek word here for sexual immorality is porneia. Now, you don't need to be a rocket science to see what English word we get out of that. The interpretation of that word is porneia is sexual immorality, right? So what does it mean, or what were the three interpretations? The three interpretations were this. Anything that is out, any, any thought, any action, any deed that was outside the explicit marriage relationship, including the betrothal period. Now, why was that significant? Well, in Jewish culture, we know the betrothal period was taken almost very closely as seriously as actual marriage. What, what are we told that Joseph had intended to do when, when he found out that Mary was pregnant with Jesus? What, they weren't married. What, what are we told he was, he was supposing to do? He was supposing to divorce her quietly. Wasn't he married? But yet in the betrothal period, they took it almost as engagement period, they took it almost as seriously as very, there was a fine line between betrothal and marriage. And so anything outside of that period, anything, any thoughts, actions, deeds, whatever it may be, inside the betrothal period and the marriage period, anything that happens in there, that sexual immorality, grounds for divorce. There was another interpretation that there was any, anything even remotely thought that you have. So a husband has a 
a fleeting thought of a, of a sexual encounter with someone else, grounds for divorce. Now, as we said last week, let's hope that's not the case. Then there's a third one, and this is where I would probably fall in the three. Any physical sexual act outside of marriage that breaks the one flesh nature of marriage. When I talk, when I give these five outlines at the start uh, of what marriage is, the one was uh, unity. The two become one flesh. They are joined together. So any sexual act that takes place outside of that marriage that, that breaks that one flesh unity, that is what Jesus is saying here, sexual immorality. So if that happens, there are grounds for divorce. Jesus says, in that instance, in that instance, a divorce and remarriage would have his sanction. So if that's the case, and I believe it is when we're dealing with this, so we can't go beyond the words of Jesus. We can't actually say, go beyond or say less than he says. Uh, there seems to be cases that divorce and remarriage are not sinful. And so we need to classify what are they. Well, the one in this case certainly seems to be in the case of, of actual physical sexual immorality. Then divorce may be permitted and seen by God as not being sinful. Hugely important point to make here is the point that while divorce in this instance is permissible, it is never, ever mandatory. Ever. Never mandatory. And I would go as far as to say, it is never even recommended. Jesus never commands anyone in that instance to get divorced. Jesus' emphasis continued to be on the permanence of marriage rather than this way that could be permitted. He's not giving an out. He is simply saying that this is, if this is the case, then yes, you may do this, but I am not recommending that you do this. Again, John Stott commented that Jesus only adds the exception clause to clarify that only remarriage that is not tantamount to adultery is the one dissolved in the case of sexual unfaithfulness. Right. And I know today is going to feel, it feels different because it's teachy rather than preachy, but it's the passage. So, and we get into the weeds here. We get into the what ifs and, and what if that and what if that. And you will go away today and you will think, but what if this happens and then that happens and then blah, blah, blah. Right. So, what, a couple of things. It throws up questions. throws up questions of, can the guilty party, in the case of sexual unfaithfulness, sexual immorality, can the guilty party remarry and not be okay with God? Not be seen as sin. And I hate using the term guilty or not guilty, but you know what I mean. And the best answer, so when we think of guilty, not guilty, who did what, what did they do, and are they, or can they remarry, can they not remarry, the best answer that I have come to find is from a theologian called John Murray, who was a systematic theology lecturer in Westminster Theological Seminary, and this is what he has written on the issue. 
In the case of the innocent party to divorce, the exception clause in Matthew 19 gives us warrant to declare his or her remarriage legitimate. But do we have such a warrant in the case of the guilty party? Hence the situation that we're placed in is this. While on the one hand, we may not declare, we may not declare the remarriage of the guilty party to be illegitimate, and adulterous, yet on the other hand, we may not declare it legitimate. That appears to be the position that the relevant evidence, that's the key. That appears to be the position that the relevant evidence leaves us. This does not mean the second marriage is neither right or wrong. It simply means that we are not in a position to declare it dogmatically, one way or the other. We must be humble enough to recognize the limitations of our knowledge a fact with which we have to reckon sometimes in very practical matters. In other words, from Scripture, from what Jesus says, we cannot argue that the guilty party can or cannot legitimately remarry. Right. For some of us in the room, that will be like, yeah, I can live with that. That's grand. We, we just don't know. And we can't determine. And so some of us will be like, that's grand. For some of you who like your, your T's crossed and your I's dotted and love to know all the answers and have it all summed up, this will crack your lid. But that's God. We don't know everything. We just don't. So what John Murray's saying there is that we don't have all the answers. We can't say it's legitimate. We can't say it's illegitimate. We, 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 we don't know. And we have to be okay with that. We have to be okay with that. As I say, some people, some people who I respect uh, greatly believe that there are no grounds for divorce and no grounds for remarriage. Full stop. None. John Piper being one of them. Piper believes that there are no grounds for, for divorce, no grounds for remarriage. End of. Honestly, this, me, John Irvine, from a friend who went to a friend high school, got about five GCSEs, did a, did, a, did a Bible college degree in Belfast Bible College. We're not saying anything about that. It's good college. Like. But this is me saying that John Piper is wrong. He's wrong. You can't read Matthew 5. You can't read Matthew 19 and say what he says. You just can't. Apparently, Piper and another theologian went on a walk one day, and Piper was, they were discussing this issue back and forward about divorce, remarriage, and Piper outlined his position, and the other, and the other, the other theologian said, well, what do you do with Matthew, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19? And Piper said, I don't read them. <coughs> Sometimes even the best amongst us can be predisposed to positions because we think they're right without examining the texts. So, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, there's the exception clause of sexual immorality. And I hope... I hope 
And if you have any questions afterwards, please come and ask me. But I hope that we're clear what that means and when that can be used. The other instance in Scripture that divorce seems to be legitimized, where Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth, and he gives direct instructions on specifically the case of a believer and a non-believer in marriage. Paul says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. This should not be seen as a contradiction to what Jesus is saying here in, in, in Matthew or Mark, but, but it's Paul, Paul has the same authority in the Scriptures. It's God-breathed. It's all Scripture. What Paul says is inerrant also. Paul is simply stating, in the, in the instance of a mixed marriage of a believer and an unbeliever, Paul says, if the unbeliever wants to leave, let them. If the unbeliever wants to leave, let them. And what he did say is that a believer is married to an unbeliever, but they are happy to stay in the marriage, then the believer should stay. He also says that if an unbeliever wants to divorce, then that is permissible. And in such case, and here's the key word to this, and in such case, the believer is not enslaved. In other words, they are not bound to that marriage. In other words, remarriage is permissible. This is known to, if, if you want to break it down really, really simply, and this is where we stand as, as Cornerstone as a church. You want to break it down really, really simple. Where we stand on divorce and remarriage is this. There are two reasons why, why divorce is permissible. Sexual immorality, desertion by an unbeliever. That's it. That's it. Desertion by an unbeliever. So in a marriage, one spouse comes to be a follower of Jesus, and the other spouse sees no way in which they can stay in that relationship then the believer must do certainly all that they can to stay in the relationship. But if it's not possible from the unbelieving spouse and they want to get a divorce, then it is permissible and neither party are bound to the first marriage. And in this case, particularly, there needs to be a lot of interaction, I believe, between the married couple and the church. This particular instance of desertion could be abused. And therefore, it is vital to know what is going on and to be able to speak into that. Again, one very practical note on this one. The divorce must never be initiated by the believer. Never. It can only be initiated by the unbeliever. So, welcome to Chipper Sunday again in Cornerstone. If this is your first time with us, can I? I'm not going to apologize, but I can, I can just say it's not like this every week, all right? Uh, for the last three or four weeks, maybe, yes. For the next three or four weeks, maybe, yes. But we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the, the kingdom that Jesus is talking about, so this must be dealt with. Uh, but, ultimately... When we think about marriage and divorce and remarriage and all these things, we come back to the same thing. What is marriage? What is marriage? 
What is God's plan for marriage? Well, it's this. It is a picture. God's plan for marriage, for human flourishing, is that it is a picture of Christ and the church. Him being the bridegroom, the, the church being the bride, it is a picture of Jesus making promises to keep the church. Folks, the reality is this. If Jesus backs out of his promises to keep the church, we're done. You get that? He has made promises to keep his church, to bring his church home, to present them on that day spotless before they will come before the Lamb of God spotless, and that is His promise. And He is faithful to that promise, and He is true to that promise, and He will keep that promise. And that promise, like we said about marriage, is not dependent on how He feels about you. Because I have no doubt, no doubt, there are some days God looks at me and looks at my behavior and looks at the way that I am, and it's like, what are you doing? But the critical thing is this. He has made a promise. That he will keep. To the end. And he will not break it. And he will have that church. And he will have that bride. And he will have her perfectly presented before him on the, on the day of the great marriage in Revelation. That's what our marriages are supposed to represent. That's what human Christian marriage is supposed to represent. Any other variation of it is almost blasphemy. It's almost blasphemy. God's vision for marriage was to be an image. I, I say it at every marriage ceremony I do. I say it at every wedding I, I, I take. You start at the start and you go through from Genesis, Adam and Eve. You go through to the people of Israel and their relationship with God. You go through to Christ and his relationship with the church. This has always been the case. God has always had this image of marriage at the heart of his relationship with his people. And that's what our marriages are supposed to reflect. It is a promise that is made to redeem his bride, and he will keep that promise. I know that Sermons like this are difficult. I know there's a lot of questions, probably more questions than answers. But as I say, do not be afraid to speak to me or one of the elders. I would be... Uh, we have spent more time... I said this to Marcus the other night. We have spent more time as elders digging into the theology of marriage, divorce, and remarriage 
than we have over any other topic. And so, if I can't explain it to you by now, probably shouldn't be doing that. So please do speak to us if you have any issues, any questions, anything you want us to answer. But folks, I don't want us to go away today being just well, one navel gazing, but I want us to—I want us to leave today with that image of Jesus and the church, and not just Jesus and the church, big picture. Jesus and the church, you. Jesus and the church, you, because He has made a promise that He will present you if you're a follower of Jesus, that He will present you perfect spotless, without blemish on the day of His return. That's a reason for praise. That's a reason to give Him glory because it's not on us. It's on Him and He will do it. And He who has promised and He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion and He will finish the work that He started and He will present you spotless before the Lamb. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us to, to help us, but you've also given it to us to reveal yourself to us. You've, this is your revealed will. And this is what you want and this is what you desire. So help us, we pray. We need your Holy Spirit to help us. We are fallen, sinful human beings who are tempted in many ways. And you know what that is like. Thank you for the words of Hebrews where it says you were tempted and yet did not sin. And you know what it is like to be us. You know where we fall. You know where we fail. And yet you shower your grace on us. So Father, help us, we pray. We need you. Thank you for your word. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.